Today's episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains background noises of birds and planes, and we apologize for that. We cannot control them. It also refers to the orphans of war, indirectly, death, directly, violence, both domestic and general, sexual objectification and using sex as a means of revenge, BDSM, blatant injustice and a farce of justice, implied racism, and generally, it's a bit frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, folks, uh, Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Please join us, won't you, for a chapter eight of Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Music? The name of which uh, we finally understood at the end of last episode. Yes. We we put the pieces of information together and it all made sense. It's all uh, Corporal Snark's fault. Yes. I now want to watch the series because the fact that they've made music to demonstrate that particular moment moment is is partially amusing to me. Yes. Ah, well, how are you doing today? I exist. No, um, I'm a little... <laughs> yes. That, that's like, you know, when um, when often people ask me, how goes it? And I will respond with, it goes. It goes, yes. Like, there's a lot going on, as as you do. A lot of pressure, as as you would expect with life. And other than that... Ooh, no. Overall, cannot complain. Okay. I cannot. I will Have not. you uh, been reading anything? Uh, yes, actually. I've kind of read back-to-back this series, which I... It's not one of those series where you have to think much. Okay. But the world that's crafted isn't bad. I just... There's... A, um, in the first couple of books, there's some gratuitous... Actually, in the first book, there's some gratuitous uh, sexual encounter. But honestly, other than that, it's it's not bad. It's not a bad series. I'm just trying to find it in front of me so I can I can shout out to the author. This is not a promotional recording. I just happen to be reading this book and it's well, interesting. Well, we we always talk about uh... exactly. So the author is D. N. Hoxha. Don't think less of me for reading dodgy magic trash, but because it's fun. And the series specifically that I'm reading is about the New York Shade. It's called the New York Shade series. Now, when when you said magic trash, is this a Magic the Gathering series or just it's swords and sorcery, that kind of thing? It's swords, sorcery, magic, urban magic. So the the whole thing that, that partially was spawned by people like Mercedes Lackey and what's her name? Madeline Lang, the idea of urban magic. Okay, because like when I was a, setting, when I was a teenager, one of my favorite fantasy books was a Magic the Gathering novel called Arena. I like the Magic the Gathering novels; they are pretty dang good. They're they're entertaining. They really it makes you relate to the game even better. That's that's all I can say. They're they're pretty good at, at reinforcing the lore. I believe mm-hmm. I like lore books. Lore books are are good. I might actually have a copy of that book somewhere in my shelf. 
I think I still have a copy in uh, my garage. I, I when I, when I my parents were selling their home I grew up in, you know, I got rid of I'd say fifty to sixty percent of the stuff I had accumulated over uh, mm. my childhood and adolescence, and then. When they moved, when my mom moved once again, I got rid of another huge chunk. So I've kind of got the we remainder didn't. in uh, big plastic tubs in my garage in the apartment I rent. Yeah, and I think that that and that's that, that's I've, I've got some things left from my childhood, but yeah, moving will make you get rid of a bunch of things. You always. you re you reevaluate, and um, some sometimes it's tough. Like the in the last move, I think I mentioned, I finally got rid of all the sketchbooks uh, that yeah. I'd had accumulated ever since I was like 13 up until probably 33 when I really, mm. I think 31, 32, 33 around there is when I stopped drawing regularly. But, yeah. and you know, I, I kept everything and now I just have a couple reminders of yeah. the cartoonist life that used to be yeah, and then that's yeah, that's how I generally. I mean, I've got a box of things that I need to scan, and then I'm getting rid of the original. That's that's a crate that lives in my closet that will get sorted. Mm. It will. It's on closet my list. Closet crate. Oh, it's. I have reduced my closet significantly, so that helps. So I now have these mm. crates that need to be dealt with. But yeah, so just this series is pretty good. There's a protagonist who. I mean, there's a lot of tropes. Um, like the protagonist who is feisty but has a secret that could get her killed, and like it, th those kind of things that that are a little predictable me me mechanics of a uh, uh, book, but it's managed to do the story well. Like there's it, there's tension. There's you you actually want to know what's motivating these people, so that's enough to be of interest. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's okay. There's a there's it it i the reason i call it magic trash is not because the author doesn't know how to write the author is effective at writing it's just that it's falls into a genre where there are almost predictable like you you're waiting for a betrayal by someone who is close or you're like you're, you're waiting for that although she doesn't always give in to that you always might feel that she there's going to be betrayal by someone who's that you've trusted but she hasn't gone into there's that something i want to bring up though cuz I remember hearing this in regards to genres such as romance or mystery. The thing about the people who read those genres almost exclusively is that the fans of the genres want the tropes. Like, you know, if yeah. if you write a romance book and it doesn't hit certain beats at certain points, the, uh, the readers will feel kind of ripped off because that's what they're there for. Same thing exactly. with mystery. So, I yeah, especially when you're dealing with... Um, niche genres I, I i think that there's a reason that they keep kind of uh hitting the same notes over and over again yeah my, my issue with a little bit with the genre is that some of them are really almost indistinguishable from other ones mm. you've swapped the names but the story yeah, is yeah. pretty much the same and it's getting a little like the, those i will generally i'll read the first couple of chapters and go yeah no this is it's repetitive it's the same thing no thanks so, so if, even if they've made a twist somewhere down the lane, lane yeah. and it's better, it's it's not gonna, yeah. Well, also, well, that, if that's... you start with a sex scene, generally that's going to be a thing that I will just go, okay. So you're one of those novels. I, uh -huh. I, I'm fine with people who who seek those novels, but it's boring to me. So mm. I just go, nah, too easy, too, too um, obvious, like too obvious a, a book. I want characters, damn it. 
characters. You, you know, t- speaking of like that sex scenes and that, I'm just uh, finishing up. I'm about have an hour left in the audiobook of the first Bridgerton novel. Mm. Yeah, and that's... you know, for a genre I don't normally engage with, it's been pretty enjoyable. Yeah, well, as long as there's good, like there's good storyline and there's good, um, I like the characters. characters. Yeah, there's there's good characters. Well, I I like the main character. It's funny because I'm getting to the end of this book, so I had a look at what the plot of the second book was going to be, and the second book stars a character from this book that I actually don't like. So I don't think I'm going to continue no. just because it's like, oh, we're we're gonna go with that character. Well, I don't like that character, so it's like moving on. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's uh, uh, some of them are really good books. Some are just terrible out there. I just, I think it is my my genre of relaxation choice is that like urban fantasy, urban fantasy, sci-fi maybe, um, just things that are just <sighs> where I don't have to think too much because I don't want to think when I'm I'm reading a book like that. But if it's annoying, then it's not going to happen either way. Also, if they're culturally just if they use, if they rely on, on, when they rely on things like racism or ableism or like, uh, it gets, that's boring to me as well. Like there's yeah. just, there's lazy writing and I, not even lazy, there's thoughtless writing. I'm okay with writing that is not too hard. Like the, the, the story doesn't have to be too complicated, but the characters are good and that's fine. It'll be interesting. What reading their mechanics of the world, particularly because we're talking, fa- if you're talking fantasy or sci-fi, that's interesting to me. Like how they justify their mechanics, how it works. Mm-hmm. World so building. So you're you're very interested in the world building aspect of the genres. Yeah, the world building is, and also just like interactions that are just not punishing naivety. That's a specific thing for me. Like I don't like it when the person who doesn't know is punished for not knowing. Okay. But, uh, like, even indirectly by the author, it's like, oh, well, you should have known better that, that so-and-so was going to betray you. You you try to see the best in... Like, rewarding seeing the good in people, but also being practical about it. So explaining when someone is betraying another, why did they betray them? Why? Explain this, please. It's like, well, they were pressured. Their family was kidnapped and held at ransom, and they had to betray their best friend of 20 years or whatever. Silly. I don't like it when you take a likable character and then make them completely unlikable mm. for no reason. Like, if there's no real justification. I don't know if we've discussed Dan Brown on the podcast before, I but um, back when uh, the Da Vinci Code was huge, right? I read yeah. Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, and then I wanted more. So I read a book of his called Digital Fortress. I think it was maybe one of the first he had published. But it was, maybe it was... The Digital Fortress is one of his uh, worst books, mm. but it was very evident reading that where it's like, oh, every one of your books has the same formula. And, and the thing I really noticed was that in his books, the side character that's introduced maybe a third to a halfway through the book that is really great, like it's a great character. They're the one that end at, at the three-quarter mark, they end up being the ultimate betrayer. They were the yeah. villain all along. And by the third book, I'm like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And then years yeah. later, I, I read, you know, The Lost Symbol and then Origin. and uh, I, I, I like his Robert Langdon books, mm. except oh, Inferno. 
I hate for many reasons, but the the others that I guess they're guilty pleasures to me because I, I I know a lot of folks don't like his writing, and I I can't really argue against it. I just enjoyable to me. Yeah, for me, yeah, it's going to be different different uh, approaches and styles. And then there's also the series that never end, and I'm going to just <laughs> wrap it up. Uh, I mean, I I get that you think you are the next Wheel of Time, but you are not. You are not. <laughs> You, you are not the next Wheel of Time. Um, you are also not uh, the Lord of the Rings, and you are also not the next Harry Potter. Please, please stop. Um, like, wrap up your story. If you need further series, further books, you want to expand on characters, cool. Make another series that involves them and and start a storyline for them. But if you... like, you know, I have feelings on this. I, like, I get annoyed when I see that this is the first book of... 500 whatever <laughs> books i'm like going this it, you've grown up on naruto and one piece and it shows like it's it's too long and you need to stop and you're not saying anything that's particularly novel or different pun intended like there's no not there's nothing going on here that couldn't have been covered in a nice neatly packed trilogy like you're just trying to sell more books on kindle kind well, of situation well, and here's the thing like you know we brought up the Dresden Files before. That's a series where the author is really great, like planting a seed in book three and having the the plant sprout in book twelve, and there's still being leaves in this metaphor in like book seventeen. Yes, I should yeah, but, say there are exceptions to the "you are not the wheel of time." Like, but but yeah. I want to say his first book was a standalone. There there was kind of you know he added in the oh there is a greater world here, but that was a self-contained story. That had a beginning, middle, and end. And the reason I loved it so much was he had a knack in that book of building up the stakes so high that I wasn't sure he was going to able to pay off the ending of the book. And then he mm. stuck the landing. I'm like, oh, I yeah. need to read your next book. This was great. I find that the Dresden Files are, I guess, an, an exception in... I mean, there are some other series that are good at writing more than the few books. But in terms of modern urban fantasy... Mm. There aren't that many books that you'd want to continue past a point. Like, they're just, they're not, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I, this is not a diss to your favorite author out there, man. This is, this is like, I, I respect that you will have your favorites and you're like, I want more. That's fine. But in terms of the ability to craft a story that is engaging and wants you leave, like, continuing to read more, there's not that many. Some you just read because you want to know what the heck happens at the end. And depending on how poorly it's written, like how many typos you encounter, how many, how poorly it's been edited, how many times they repeat the same sentence, just <laughs> in, well, like, it's terrible. Like the repetitiveness, when it's that kind of writing, you're like, you know what? I was invested in this character. Mm. I was invested in this world. You wrote the character well enough for me to want to care. But now I can't, I can't tolerate, you can't torture me with another, I don't know how many novels where you dance around the, the actual story like, and yes. portent. You cannot portent for 15 books. No more portent. Get on with it. It's not important anymore. It is just like, you have portented. That was to, really good. Thank you. They, uh, it's but, but no longer portent. You, you, um, you brought up Wheel of Time. So here's the thing. Yeah. I read the first Wheel of Time book last year. Was yeah. it last year? Two years ago now. Maybe. Time is weird. Yes. But, but it's like a wheel. That's you know, I, I want to continue with that series at some point. I really enjoyed that first book. But here's the thing. If I never read the second, 
I will have always enjoyed that first book on its yes. own. It was a nice story. Yes. Yes. Whereas a lot of times you read a book and you're going, why is this continuing? Why? Why? I, I get it. But no, why did you leave this on a cliffhanger? This didn't need to be a cliffhanger. You could have resolved this in two more chapters. But, well, here, uh, here's another one, uh, uh, example, actually, a personal example. When I was in my mid-20s, I had a dream that has stuck with me to this day. It basically a, um, a story idea, right? Mm. So um, over, over the years, I've tried, you know, I've bought many books on how to write stories, and I've tried many times. And there was one I bought, a book I bought about, you know, it's, I think it's the 90-day novel. And I used this idea that's been in my head ever since I had that dream. I use, I'm like, okay, this sounds like the right pairing. Finally, maybe I can write this idea out. And I go to, you know, like a lot of my attempts, I eventually left it off, although I still have the Google Doc. But what the cool thing about this, so it's, a, it's urban fantasy. That's the genre of this idea. And it has like the idea of what the world is, who the main character is, and what their their deal is, is interesting enough for a whole series. Like, I could expand mm. that world. I, I could, that character could go on different adventures. But at least from what I had planned out before I stopped writing it, that story, the first book, that that was it going be, to be yeah, a self- self-contained. Yeah. She, she has, she has, uh, something that she she has a trauma within herself that she needs to overcome and by the end of the book she overcomes that yeah and i think that there's nothing wrong with that i think you should be able to do that and, and I, the way that you can leave that open for further stories is you kind of go she's now but at the end of the book you go she now knows who she is and yeah. wh how she wants to be well, and then in, like in, yeah. in my in my head i thought about how would i continue this and go well you know She's overcome this hurdle. There may be other hurdles or the other characters in the story might have hurdles. Basically going with the idea that most stories are about a character overcoming something within themselves. Yeah. But also the thing is overcoming or get coming to terms with is probably the word I mm -hmm. use. Coming to terms with trauma doesn't mean that you're not. It just means that you now have a different perspective by which you can interact with the world that you're in. So it so so you just change the setting. And, so you and, throw and them I, in a different setting. Yeah. I, I, now that I've said it out loud, you know, it, it rings very true that the uh, the character overcoming trauma is kind of tropey in itself. So, but I mean, look. Also, this is if I ever get this completed, this is going to be my first novel. It's going to be terrible, <laughs> and I'm it probably not going to show it to anyone. It'll be fine. Like, <laughs> but I'll finish that. I'll finish you, that, and then I'll be able to write another one. And, if you ever want to feel good about your ability to write novels, just read some of the urban fantasy that is out there that is definitely not great. Well, I, I, I guess that's the pro and con about great. self publishing, right? The pro and con is like, trust me, there's. If you don't repeat the same sentence or the same swear word as like a catchphrase of your character, you are already miles ahead about ahead of about, I'd say, 80% of, of, of the mm. current fiction writers out there. Anyway, but in the meantime, we have a different kind of repeating that does happen in Catch-22 that has a purpose. Segway! Thank you, because it's it's about bringing you back to, oh, we're now talking about this story again. 
this is mm. where it's happening. And seeing the same story, I think, also from different fractions and, and like, fractures of it and – not fractures sec- – sections of the same story from different perspectives as well. So, yes. I yeah. Uh, which which might be, again, the idea of if your, uh, if your life is, you know – running missions and then you have all this downtime between missions where you might die at any moment. Mm. Um, there, there's a certain routine that enters out of that as horrific as the whole ordeal is. Yeah. It's a bit intense. Like I, we, we, we learned a little bit about Milo last um, time mm. and yeah, he's something. And I think, well, we learned about, we learned about McWatt, but we learned only, very little about McWatt. We learned very little about McWatt, only that he, I think that he's it has some sort of arrangements and cahoots with Yasserian. Like there's some some like they work together as a team with Yasserian. Mm. But Milo's now trying to become part of a team because he wants to go businessy, and that doesn't really like he's just he's not he's not the most fresh egg in the hat uh, like the the the, the yeah. that's what it feels like. Or uh, otherwise, he is actually making a profit, and we don't know. But it's just confusing no no i i i don't think he is i i think yeah. he's he's he he's got the idea of how business works but he doesn't understand it no like he wants to be a clever businessman and so he said okay i'm going to be a clever businessman but then doesn't know how to do the clever businessing mm. um and it's funny because him and clevenger actually remind me of each other remind me of yeah they they remind me of each other in the sense of that they think they know what they know, but they don't actually know. Mm. They think they are who they, I don't know, but th- that was just based on the conversation that Clevenger and, um, Yossarian had where he, he says things to Yossarian and hears what Yossarian has to say, but doesn't understand it. And therefore he just insists on saying the thing. No, no, but this is the thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Similar kind of confusion and, and disconnect kind of uh clevenger is hanging on to the protocol of the military and milo is kind of influenced by how he believes economics in the business world work yes and at the same time milo tries to stick within the law because he knows that you have to stay within the rules as long as you stay within the rules so that's why he'd probably know the rules back to front Mm, yeah yeah so these are people who stick to the rules but one because he wants to still make a profit but not get into trouble and the other one is because that's the only thing that's making him function. That's the, he has to have a true belief in something. Yeah. No, yeah, Milo would know the rules because he needs to know where he can put his toe over the line. Yeah, or where he can, how he can stay within the, the, the boundaries but then find the loopholes so that he can exploit them for his clever business dealings. <laughs> that was <TM>. sarcasm. <laughs> So, okay, yes. well... And so today we learn about Lieutenant Scheisskopf. Yes, let's uh, continue with uh, Chapter 8. Lieutenant Scheisskopf. Not even Clevenger understood how Milo could do that, and Clevenger knew everything. Mm. Clevenger knew everything about the war, except why Yesarian had to die while Corporal Snark was allowed to live, or why Corporal Snark had to die while Yesarian was allowed to live. It was a vile and muddy war, and Yasserian could have lived without it, lived forever perhaps. Only a fraction of his countrymen would give up their lives to win it, and it was not his ambition to be among them. To die or not to die, that was the question, and Clevenger grew limp trying to answer it. 
History did not demand Yasserian's premature demise. Justice could be satisfied without it. Progress did not hinge upon it. Victory did not depend on it. That men would die was a matter of necessity. Which men would die, though, was a matter of circumstance. Mm. And Yasserian was willing to be the victim of anything but circumstance. But that was war. Just about all he could find in its favor was that it paid well and liberated children from the pernicious influence of their parents. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's dark. Yep. That that's, is so dark. Yes. Oof. Clevenger knew so much because Clevenger was a genius with a pounding heart and blanching face. He was oh, a God. gangling, gawky, feverish, famish-eyed brain. As a Harvard undergraduate, he had won prizes in scholarship for just about everything, and the only reason he had not won prizes in scholarship for everything else was he was too busy signing petitions, circulating petitions, and challenging petitions, joining discussion groups, and resigning from discussion groups, attending youth congresses, picketing other youth congresses, and organizing student committees in defense of dismissed faculty members. Everyone agreed that Clevenger was certain to go far in the academic world. In short, Clevenger was one of those people with lots of intelligence and no brains, and everyone knew it except those who soon found it out. Wait, stop. Everyone, so Clevenger was one of those people with lots of intelligence and no brains. So he didn't have gumption or he didn't actually have the intellect? I don't know, it's too confusing. Could be uh, a little I like... I guess it's a paper intelligence, like on paper he's intelligent. Book smart, street smarts, or, you know, I, I mean, you've brought it up, but you've never said it in so many words. But the idea that to become a doctor, you have to be of a certain intelligence level just to go through all those years of med school. But then some of the people you've dealt with, you're like, how did you ever get here? Yes, uh, there's that the, the intelligence and, and competence are not necessarily in a mutually agreeable arrangement. Or, you know, the, the people are smart enough to, like, study and take the tests, but to apply the knowledge? Yes, there, there, there's a, an, a, a gap between understanding and, ap like, knowledge and application, yeah. I think there's, it's it's saying things like, you know, it's the scholarship, he's very busy, so I think he's an academic, kind of, he ha he's dr driving for an academic career, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's smart, it just means that he know like, he understands that world and that system. Well, also like the, the the joking idea where you know he was joining groups, he was resigning from groups, he was he was picketing against some, and he was defending others. It's like this is what students do. So let me just always spend time doing these things. It's almost Maybe. like what they're for or against doesn't matter. He's just doing the thing. Well, that's the thing. Like it, it sounds like this is a person who's an eminence-based academic, so someone who wants to build up a reputation and and like it's it's the surface it's never actually about because over here at the beginning he's like going about the war clevenger doesn't know how to respond and keeps getting asked by yasarian like why should i die like there's no reason for it and the way that he history did not demand it so historically you don't need to someone shouldn't have to die justice is doesn't like it's not required for any just reason it won't cause progress, and victory doesn't depend on his death. And yet, circumstance will cause, it'll, it'll depend on circumstance who dies. Because war requires at least the death of some people. 
yes, war relies upon death or has death involved in it. Like that's a necessity. It's part of it in, in his mind. And then, yeah, the circumstances is who. And that's interesting that it's um, being phrased that way. Like he's trying to intellectualize and go use inte- uh, the intellectual aspect mm-hmm. as to how it's related. And that's where the difference is that you might be really, really good at like trying to understand the, the just the information, but you're not good at understanding what it looks like in practice at all. That he likes to intellectual exercises around this idea, but not not actually understanding. But why? Why do people die? Yeah, like like he he may also be the type where you know he's good with the facts on the page, but like philosophy, the the act of asking the why. Yeah, as you just said, the why behind things that that's yeah. uh, foreign. That's I mean that's an issue we have in academia either way. But it's just um, so you end up with this. Yeah, you had this superficial knowledge and yet lacking the application and understanding behind it. And so I think it's lots of intelligence and no brains. Everyone who, everyone knew it except those who soon found it out. So everyone knows that he's intelligent because I think he, he makes sure that they know, Mm. but it's when they're interacting more with him, they realize that he doesn't actually understand what he's talking about. You think him and Arfie are friends? I think Arfie's different. Arfie doesn't even, isn't even aware of what's going on like let alone know anything he only knows i mean he's he's i think if we were to use a colloquialism arfie comes across as the jock yeah he he was definitely concerned with fraternity yeah like the jock or the 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 um stereotypical of course mm-hmm. um whereas um clevenger is the one who knows how to get into places and knows what to do and how to sound but doesn't necessarily understand people Mm. and knowledge and application um so yes in short he was a dope he often looked to yesarian like one of those people hanging around modern museums with both eyes together on one side of a Mm. face it was an illusion of course generated by clevenger's predilection for staring fixedly at one side of a question and never seeing the other side at all politically he was a humanitarian who did know right from left and was trapped uncomfortably between the two. He was constantly defending his communist friends to his right-wing enemies and his right-wing friends to his communist mm. enemies. And he was thoroughly detested by both groups who never defended him to anyone because they thought he was a dope. Yeah, there's, there's a, that's still not a very popular position to be in. Mm. Centrism is never appealing to anyone, especially because if this is a person who is obviously caring much more about how other people perceive him yeah than than who he actually is but oh no wait next sentence next sentence he was a very serious very earnest and very conscientious dope it was impossible to go to a movie with him without getting involved afterwards in a discussion on empathy aristotle universals messages and the obligations of the cinema as an art form in a materialistic society oh boy like I, I, I get those conversations and they're fine. Oh, in... I love I lo- my favorite yeah. part of going to the theater with someone is talking about the movie afterwards. But, yes. you know, to actually talk about the movie. Yes. But the other thing is you can you can go into these topics. It's great. They're fine. Mm. But if that's the if you you're doing so with an unwilling. Like if that's not what you and your friends do. Then it's just you wanting to sound smart. Yeah, the, the next sentence kind of hammers that home. Yeah. 
Uh, girls he took to the theater had to wait until the first intermission to find out from him whether or not they were seeing a good or a bad play, and then found out at once. He was a militant idealist who crusaded against racial bigotry mm. by growing faint in its presence. Wow. He knew, he knew everything about literature except how to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that this is this is the thing that that like that stereotype of the people who are constantly criticizing language but don't actually explain why it's harmful, like why we don't use certain terms because they are associated with harm. But then if you actually face and see something that is harming that population that that is harmful language about you're like oh see what nothing no oh yeah it's really bad not actually seeing the thing and doing anything about someone it. should do something yes someone should do something oh racism is terrible we should really work on it <laughs> let really me, let me tweet about it yeah yeah well or, or uh, but then if someone is actually in front of them and and is being discriminated against, not doing anything about it, not having enough courage and conviction to actually stand up and do something. Yeah. yeah. Um, when, but just kind of being not li like in in principle, it's a, it goes against my ethics. But then if you see something, not doing anything, that's yeah. It's it's. And I think I'm laughing so much as this because I see a little bit of him, or maybe more than a little bit, reflected in me. I'm like, no, I'm not a Clevenger. I think everyone who means well is well-intentioned. I mean, he's very serious. He's very earnest and conscientious. Like, he is actually... He just doesn't know when it's appropriate and when it isn't, for one. And also, he's he doesn't understand things aside from the intellectual. He intellectually... We've had this. He grasps it on an intellectual level. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the lived reality and the practical application... So true understanding, which is usually developed in application, he does not have that. Or, or you know, the emotional level is probably not even... Well, that's I, I'd say that that's application. Emotional, like he might be passionate and really... He said it, it's like he was a militant idealist. He crusaded against it by... Like, so he's, he's very much against racial bigotry. But the way he is against racial bigotry is that he just avoids settings that it takes place in. Or he just goes, oh no, it's terrible. How terrible. Yeah. Like, what? Really? Someone should do something. Yeah. Okay. So, Yasserian tried to help him. Don't be a dope, he had counseled Clevenger when they were both at cadet school in Santa Ana, California. I'm going to tell him, Clevenger insisted, as the two of them sat high in the reviewing stands, looking down on the auxiliary parade ground at Lieutenant Scheiskop, raging back and forth like a beardless leer. Why me? Lieutenant Scheiskop wailed. Keep still, idiot, Yasserian advised Clevenger avuncularly. You don't know what you're talking about, Clevenger objected. I know enough to keep still, idiot. Lieutenant Scheiskopf tore his hair and gnashed his teeth. His ruppery cheeks shook with gusts of anguish. His problem was a squadron of aviation cadets with low morale who marched atrociously in the parade competition that took place every Sunday afternoon. Their morale was low because they did not want to march in parades every Sunday afternoon, and because Lieutenant Scheiskopf had appointed cadet officers from their ranks yeah. instead of permitting them to elect their own. I want someone to tell me, Lieutenant Scheiskopf beseeched them all prayerfully, if any of it is my fault, I want to be told. He wants someone to tell him, Clevenger said. He wants everyone to keep still, idiot, Yossarian answered. Didn't you hear him, Clevenger argued. 
I heard him, Yasserian replied. I heard him say very loudly and very distinctly that he wants every one of us to keep our mouths shut if we know what's good for us. I won't punish you, Lieutenant Shyskopf swore. He says he won't punish me, said Clevenger. He'll castrate you, said Yasserian. I swear I won't punish you, said Lieutenant Shyskopf. I'll be grateful to the man who tells me the truth. He'll hate you, said Yasserian. To his dying day, he'll hate you. Lieutenant Shyskopf was an ROTC graduate who was rather glad that war had broken out, since it gave him an opportunity to wear an officer's uniform every day and say men in a clipped military voice to the bunches of kids who fell into his clutches every eight weeks on their way to the butcher's block. He was an ambitious and humorless Lieutenant Shyskopf, who confronted his responsibilities soberly and smiled only when some rival officer at the Santa Ana Army Air Force Base came down with a lingering disease. He had poor eyesight and chronic sinus trouble, which made war especially exciting for him since he was in no danger of going overseas. The best thing about him was his wife, and the best thing about his wife was a girlfriend named Dory Does, who did whatever she could and had a whack uniform that Lieutenant Shyskopf's wife put on every weekend and took off every weekend for every cadet in her husband's squadron who wanted to creep into her. Oh, yeah. that's lovely. Dory I'm just pausing, just before we go into Dory. So, you know how he said Yossarian takes everything literally? Mm. He, he read between the lines here. Yes, I think he he takes everything literally when it's when it's a certain setting or he says things. But in this case, it's Clevenger who's taking things very literally at face value. But I think Yossarian has had enough interactions with Shyskopf. I hope we're going to find out. But enough interaction with Shyskopf to know that he doesn't mean when he says that. Like he's not, it's not congruent with his character. I think we've, we've all found that out at one point in our lives where like, yeah. oh, they didn't re actually say what they mean, or they didn't want my honest opinion. Every time. But yes, 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 yes. And, and, and then there's always that real... I, I still kind of have the confusion. I mean, I understand it intellectually that people are being uh, deceitful or they're trying to... Um, either they don't want the truth or they, they, want to, they want an excuse to go after someone. Yeah. But, you know, to this day, it's still like, why do that, man? Yeah, if yeah. if you don't want people to tell you the truth, don't say that you want people to tell you uh, the truth. It's a, it's a whole that's a whole it's a whole weird human thing that I just mm. I have issues with. I have difficulties with. Humans are hard. Okay, and, sorry, and, but yes. And then and then when folks you know get get attacked for being honest, people wonder why they're they're not forthcoming with honesty anymore. Yeah, I think I mean there is a thing about not, you don't want to people don't necessarily want the brutal truth. But they want the kind truth. They want, and if you're saying honest, honesty doesn't have to be brutal. I mean, there's a whole thing. Like, there's layers to this. Mm -hmm. When there's people who don't want any sort of feedback and they ask for feedback, that's weird. But if there's people who ask, hey, can you just tell me your opinion or what do you really think? And then you're like, look, and then you give, you either, depending on the person and your relationship with them, you might be able to just say, look, I'm, I personally, I don't know if that's going to work out for you. I don't think I, that's a great idea. Like you can do that with some people, but you can't do it with everyone. Yeah, a, a lot of folks over the years who ask me for feedback, I've learned uh, kind of through hardship that that usually means I want you to tell me positive things you liked about my work. I don't want any negatives or what you think I could improve unless they specifically ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like what part of it did you like? And then often that helps like to also focus on, well, what are the things that were good about this? 
Mm. And if there's something, you can't say anything that is good about it. It's like, like I can see you put a lot of effort into this. That's or my or um, I, I've heard this before. Uh, it's kind of one of the, it's a backhanded compliment. The, it looked like you had a lot of fun making this. Well, no, it can, you can have fun making things and that shouldn't be a negative thing. And if no, no, it, but it's the idea that that's the only thing. Like you're, you're saying, you know, it's it's code for well. I don't think it's very good, but you obviously put a lot of work know. into I it. I can't so. even tr I can't even translate from that because I just I don't. I'll just take it at face value. I'm like going, well, yes, I did. <laughs> it's like uh, mm -hmm. no, I didn't. And you know, very no, I, I am right there with you because you know a lot of my videos, I do have a lot of fun making. I enjoy yeah. this podcast and the discussions we have. Editing is usually enjoyable for me. I have well, fun putting good. these these files together. You know, it's mm -hmm. um. Yeah, it, 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 it's an oddity, but it, that's another one of those where over the years I've learned that, that that's a sarcasm. It's like in the South when people say, bless your heart. Yeah, there's a, I don't know, we need a little bit more sincerity, but also kindness when we say it. I, mm. I think there's also a fear that being told you're a mistake, everything you're doing is wrong. And, and people are asking for feedback doesn't necessarily mean they're open to criticism. They might just be wanting, mm -hmm. what, what did you enjoy? What parts? Like, look, this is probably not my thing i'm probably not the best person to give you feedback on this because i'm not well versed in that or whatever like I, I will tell people i don't know if i'm really that helpful in this regard so yeah it's it's important but yeah so now we find out that shyskopf has got a wife who sleeps with anyone that he that that or wants. at least strips for everyone uh, no creep into her that's implying a bit more than just True. strip and dory does does but yeah so there's a lot of implied um, sexual promiscuity. Dory Does was a lovely little tart of copper green and gold who loved doing it best in tool sheds, phone booths, field houses, and bus kiosks. There was little she hadn't tried unless she wouldn't. She was shameless, slim, 19, and aggressive. She destroyed egos by the score and made men hate themselves in the morning for the way she found them, used them, and tossed them aside. Yasarian loved her. She was a marvelous piece of ass who found him only fair. He loved the feel of springy muscle beneath her skin everywhere he touched her the only time she'd let him. Yasarian loved Dory Does so much that he couldn't help flinging himself down passionately on top of Lieutenant Shyskop's wife every week to revenge himself upon Lieutenant Shyskop for the way Lieutenant Shyskop was revenging himself upon Clevenger. Yeesh. Lieutenant Shyskop's wife was revenging herself upon Lieutenant Shyskop for some unforgettable crime of his she couldn't recall. She was a plump, pink, sluggish girl who read good books and kept urging Yasserian not to be so bourgeoisie without the R. So bourgeois. <laughs> but so she knows how to pronounce it. Mm. So she says bourgeois. bourgeois. Oh, I said that wrong, didn't I? No, no, bourgeoisie, sorry. She was sure. never without a good book close by, not even when she was lying in bed with nothing on her but Yasarian and Dory Does' dog tags. She bored Yasarian, but he was in love with her, too. She was a crazy mathematics major from the Wharton School of Business who could not count to 28 each month without getting into trouble. Darling. Sorry? Sorry, I'm just like going, oh, wow, really? <laughs> Darling, we're going to have a baby again, she would say to Yasarian every month. You're out of your goddamn head, he would reply. I mean it, baby, she insisted. So do I. Darling, we're going to have a baby again, she would say to her husband. 
I haven't the time, Lieutenant Shyskop would grumble petulantly. Don't you know there's a parade going on? Lieutenant Shyskop cared very deeply about winning parades and about bringing Clevenger up on charges before the action board for conspiring to advocate the overthrow of the cadet officers Lieutenant Shyskop had appointed. Clevenger was a troublemaker and a wise guy. Lieutenant Shyskopf knew that Clevenger might cause even more trouble if he wasn't watched. Mm. Yesterday, it was the cadet officers. Tomorrow, it might be the world. Okay, so we had the thing where Lieutenant Shyskopf asked for feedback. What am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that the reason what he's doing wrong is he's appointing officers, uh, cadet officers, instead of allowing the men to select their officers. Mm -hmm. And Clevenger obviously responded and told him, you're not letting them select, you should let them select the, the officers and then they'll do better. And that's... He and was so branded that, a, a troublemaker. Yeah. He's a troublemaker who wants to overthrow the whole system. Yes. Oh, no. And th th this is why you don't uh, give feedback, at least, at least in a hierarchy like the military. No, 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 no. Clevenger had a mind, and Lieutenant Shyskopf had noticed that people with minds tended to get pretty smart at times. Such men were dangerous, and even the new cadet officers whom Clevenger had helped into office were eager to give damning testimony against him. The case against Clevenger was open and shut. The only thing missing was something to charge him with. It could not be anything to do with parades, for Clevenger took the parades almost as seriously as Lieutenant Shyskopf himself. The men fell out for the parades early each Sunday afternoon and groped their way into ranks of twelve outside the barracks. Groaning with hangovers, they limped in step to their station on the main parade ground, where they stood motionless in the heat for an hour or two with the men from the 60 or 70 other cadet squadrons until enough of them had collapsed to call the day. <sighs> on the edge of the field stood a row of ambulances and teams of trained stretcher bearers with walkie-talkies. On the roofs of the ambulances were spotters with binoculars. A tally clerk kept score. Supervising this entire phase of the operation was a medical officer with a flair for accounting who okayed pulses and checked the figures of the tally clerk. As soon as enough unconscious men had been collected in the ambulances, the medical officer signaled the bandmaster to strike up the band and end the parade. One behind the other, the squadrons marched up the field, executed a cumbersome turn around their reviewing stand, and marched down the field and back to their barracks. Each of the parading squadrons was graded as it marched past the reviewing stand where a bloated colonel with a big fat mustache sat with the other officers. The best squadron in each wing won a yellow pennant on a pole that was utterly worthless. The best squadron on the base won a red pennant on a longer pole that was worth even less, since the pole was heavier and was that much more of a nuisance to lug around all week until some other squadron won it the following Sunday. To Yasserian, the idea of penance as prizes was absurd. No money went with them, no class privileges. Like Olympic medals and tennis trophies, all they signified was that the owner had done something of no benefit to anyone more capably than everyone else. Hmm. That's very cynical. Yes, it is, but it's also not inaccurate in this instance. The parades themselves seem equally absurd. Yasserian hated a parade. Parades were so martial... He hated hearing them, hated seeing them, hated being tied up in traffic by them. He hated being made to take part in them. It was bad enough being an aviation cadet without having to act like a soldier in the blistering heat every Sunday afternoon. It was bad enough being an aviation cadet because it was obvious now that the war would not be over before he had finished his training. 
That was the only reason he had volunteered for cadet training in the first place. As a soldier who had qualified for aviation cadet training, he had weeks and weeks of waiting for assignment to a class, weeks and weeks more to become a bombardier navigator, weeks and weeks more of operational training after that to prepare him for overseas duty. It seemed inconceivable then that the war could last that long, for God was on his side, he had been told, and God, he had also been told, could do whatever he wanted to. But the war was not nearly over, and his training was almost complete. Lieutenant Scheiskopf longed desperately to win parades and sat up half the night working on it while his wife waited amorously for him in bed, thumbing through craft ebbing to her favorite passages. He read books on marching. He manipulated boxes of chocolate soldiers until they melted in his hands and then maneuvered in ranks of twelve a set of plastic cowboys he had bought from the mail order house under an assumed name and kept locked away from everyone's eyes during the day. Leonardo's exercises in anatomy proved indispensable. One evening, he felt the need for a live model and directed his wife to march around the room. Naked, she asked hopefully. Lieutenant Shyskov smacked his hands over his eyes in exasperation. It was the despair of Lieutenant Shyskov's life to be chained to a woman who was incapable of looking beyond her own dirty sexual desires to the titanic struggles for the unattainable in which noble man could become heroically engaged. Marches. <laughs> his, his, his dedication to marches. Wow. Why don't you ever whip me, she pouted one night. Because I haven't the time, he snapped at her impatiently. I haven't the time. Don't you know there's a parade going on? And you really did not have the time. There it was Sunday already, with only seven days left in the week to get ready for the next parade. He had no idea where the hours went. Finishing last in three successive parades had given Lieutenant Shyskopf an unsavory reputation, and he considered every means of improvement, even nailing the twelve men in each rank to a long two-by-four beam of seasoned oak to keep them in line. The plan was not feasible, for making a ninety-degree turn would have been impossible without nickel-alloy swivels inserted in the small of every man's back, and Lieutenant Shyskopf was not sanguine at all about obtaining that many nickel-alloy swivels from quartermaster or enlisting the cooperation of the surgeons at the hospital. Wow, so what he's been doing with the toys, with the dolls, he's like, mm -hmm. I want to do that exactly that way, and the humans, like, uh, no, mate, no, no. Yeah, he's, um... He, and this, this is just that the cadet training, this guy's completely unhinged and he hasn't even seen combat. Well, and he won't, he won't see his combat, so. The week after Lieutenant Shyskopf followed Clevenger's recommendation and let the men elect their own cadet officers, the squadron won the yellow pennant. Hmm. Lieutenant Shyskopf was so elated by his unexpected achievement that he gave his wife a sharp crack over the head with the pole when she tried to drag him into bed to celebrate by showing their contempt for the sexual mores of the lower middle classes in Western civilization. The next week, the squadron won the red flag, and Lieutenant Shyskopf was beside himself with rapture. And the week after that, his squadron made history by winning the red pennant two weeks in a row. Now Lieutenant Shyskopf had confidence enough in his powers to spring his big surprise. Lieutenant Shyskopf, had discovered in his extensive research that the hands of marchers, instead of swinging freely, as was then the popular fashion, ought never to be moved more than three inches from the center of the thigh, which meant, in effect, that they were scarcely to be swung at all. Lieutenant Shyskopf's preparations were elaborate and clandestine. All the cadets in his squadron were sworn to secrecy and rehearsed in the dead of night on the auxiliary parade ground, 
They marched in darkness that was pitched and bumped into each other blindly, but they did not panic, and they were learning to march with that swing in their hands. Lieutenant Shyskop's first thought had been to have a friend of his in the sheet metal shop sink pegs of nickel alloy into each man's thigh bones and lead them to the wrists by strands of copper wire with exactly three inches of play. But there wasn't time. There was never enough time, and good copper wire was hard to come by in wartime. He remembered also that the men, so hampered, would be unable to fall properly during the impressive fainting ceremony preceding the marching, and that an inability to faint properly might affect the unit's rating as a whole. <laughs> Rue did a full face palm there. Uh, he's painful, yes. It's correctly termed. He, yeah, he lives up to his name. Mm. And all week long, he chortled with repressed delight at the officers' club. Speculation grew rampant among his closest friends. I wonder what that shithead is up to, Lieutenant Eagle said. Lieutenant Shyskopf responded with a knowing smile to the queries of his colleagues. You'll find out Sunday, he promised. You'll find out. Lieutenant Shyskopf unveiled his epochal surprise that Sunday with all the aplomb of an experienced impresario. He said nothing while the other squadrons ambled past the reviewing stand crookedly in their customary manner. He gave no sign even when the first ranks of his own squadron hove into sight with their swingless marching and the first shrieking gasps of alarm were hissing from his startled fellow officers. He held back even then until the bloated colonel with the big fat mustache whirled upon him savagely with a purpling face and then he offered the explanation that made him immortal. Look, colonel, he announced, no hands. And to an audience, stilled with awe, he distributed certified photostatic copies of the obscure regulation on which he had built his unforgettable triumph. This was Lieutenant Shyskopf's finest hour. He won the parade, of course, hands down, obtaining permanent possession of the red pennant and ending the Sunday parades altogether, since good red pennants were as hard to come by in wartime as good copper wire. Lieutenant Shyskopf was made first Lieutenant Shyskopf on the spot and began his rapid rise through the ranks. There were few who did not hail him as a true military genius for his important discovery. Wow. That Lieutenant Shyskopf, Lieutenant Travers remarked, he's a military genius. Yes, he really is, Lieutenant Eagle agreed. It's a pity the schmuck won't whip his wife. I don't see what that has to do with it, Lieutenant Travers answered coolly. Lieutenant Bemis whips Mrs. Bemis beautifully every time they have sexual intercourse, and he isn't worth a farthing at parades. I'm talking about flagellation, Lieutenant Eagle retorted. Who gives a damn about parades? Actually, no one but Lieutenant Shyskopf really gave a damn about the parades, least of all the bloated colonel with the big fat mustache, who was chairman of the action board and began bellowing at Clevenger the moment Clevenger stepped gingerly into the room to plead innocent to the charges Lieutenant Shyskopf had lodged against him. The colonel beat his fist down upon the table and hurt his hand and became so further enraged with Clevenger that he beat his fist down upon the table even harder and hurt his hand some more. Lieutenant Shyskopf glared at Clevenger with tight lips, mortified by the poor impression Clevenger was making. In 60 days, you'll be fighting Billy Patrol, the colonel with the big fat mustache roared, and you think it's a big fat joke? I don't think it's a joke, sir, Clevenger replied. Don't interrupt. Yes, sir. And say, sir, when you do, ordered Major Metcalf. Yes, sir. Weren't you just ordered not to interrupt, Major Metcalf inquired coldly. But I didn't interrupt, sir, Clevenger protested. No, and you didn't say, sir, either. Add that to the charges against him. Major Metcalf directed the corporal who could take shorthand. Failure to say, sir, to superior officers when not interrupting them. Oh, God. 
What? <laughs> yep. Oh, uh, well. Ooh. Kangaroo court. Metcalf, said the colonel, you're a goddamn fool. Do you know that? Major Metcalf swallowed with difficulty. Yes, sir. Then keep your goddamn mouth shut. You don't make sense. There were three members of the action board, the bloated colonel with the big fat mustache, Lieutenant Shyskoff, and Major Metcalf, who was trying to develop a steely gaze. As a member of the action board, Lieutenant Shyskoff was one of the judges who would weigh the merits of the case against Clevenger as presented by the prosecutor. Lieutenant Shyskoff was also the prosecutor. Clevenger had an officer defending him. The officer defending him was Lieutenant Shyskoff. It was all very confusing to Clevenger, who began vibrating in terror as the colonel surged to his feet like a gigantic belch and threatened to rip his stinking, cowardly body apart limb from limb. One day he had stumbled while marching to class. The next day he was formally charged with breaking ranks while in formation, felonious assault, indiscriminate behavior, mopery, high treason, provoking, being a smart guy, listening to classical music, and so on. In short, they threw the book at him. And there he was, standing in dread before the bloated colonel, who roared once more that in sixty days he would be fighting Billy Patrol, and demanded to know how the hell he would like being washed out and shipped to the Solomon Islands to bury bodies. Clevenger replied with courtesy that he would not like it. He was a dope who would rather be a corpse than bury one. The colonel sat down and settled back, calm and cagey suddenly, ingratiatingly polite. What did you mean, he inquired slowly, when you said we couldn't punish you? When, sir? I'm asking the questions. You're answering them. Yes, sir. I... Did you think we brought you here to ask questions and for me to answer them? No, sir. I... What did we bring you here for? To answer questions. You're goddamn right, roared the colonel. Now suppose you start answering some before I break your goddamn head. Just what the hell did you mean, you bastard, when you said we couldn't punish you? I don't think I ever made that statement, sir. Will you speak up, please? I couldn't hear you. Yes, sir. I... Will you speak up, please? He couldn't hear you. Yes, sir. I... Metcalf. Sir... Didn't I tell you to keep your stupid mouth shut? Yes, sir. Then keep your stupid mouth shut when I tell you to keep your stupid mouth shut. Do you understand? Will you speak up, please? I couldn't hear you. Yes, sir. I... Metcalf, is that your foot I'm stepping on? No, sir. It must be Lieutenant Shyskoff's foot. It isn't my foot, said Lieutenant Shyskoff. Then maybe it is my foot after all, said Major Metcalf. Move it. Yes, sir. You'll have to move your foot first, Colonel. It's on top of mine. Are you telling me to move my foot? No, sir. No, no, sir. Then move your foot and keep your stupid mouth shut. Will you speak up, please? I still couldn't hear you. Yes, sir. I said that I didn't say that you couldn't punish me. Just what the hell are you talking about? I'm answering your question, sir. What question? Just what the hell did you mean, you bastard, when you said we couldn't punish you, said the corporal, who could take shorthand, reading from his stenopad. All right, said the colonel. Just what the hell did you mean? I didn't say you couldn't punish me, sir. When? asked the colonel. When what, sir? Now you're asking me questions again. I'm sorry, sir. I'm afraid I don't understand your question. When didn't you say we couldn't punish you? Don't you understand my question? No, sir. I don't understand. You just told us that. Now suppose you answer my question. But how can I answer it? That's another question you're asking me. I'm sorry, sir, but I don't know how to answer it. I never said you couldn't punish me. Now you're telling us when you did say it. I'm asking you to tell us when you didn't say it. What? <laughs> Clevenger took a deep breath. I always didn't say you couldn't punish me, sir. That's much better, Mr. Clevenger, even though it is a barefaced lie. Last night in the latrine, didn't you whisper that we couldn't punish you to that other dirty son of a bitch we don't like? What's his name? Yesarian, sir, Lieutenant Shyskopf said. Yes, Yesarian. That's right, Yesarian. Yesarian? Is that his name? Yesarian? What the hell kind of name is Yesarian? 
Lieutenant Shyskov had the facts at his fingertips. It's Yesarian's name, sir, he explained. Yes, I suppose it is. Didn't you whisper to Yesarian that we couldn't punish you? Oh, no, sir. I whispered to him that you couldn't find me guilty. I may be stupid, interrupted the colonel, but the distinction escapes me. I guess I am pretty stupid because the distinction escapes me. But you're a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? Nobody asked you for clarification, and you're giving me clarification. I was making a statement, not asking for clarification. You are a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? No, sir. No, sir. Are you calling me a goddamn liar? Oh, no, sir. Then you're a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? No, sir. Are you trying to pick a fight with me? No, sir. Are you a windy son of a bitch? No, sir. God damn it, you are trying to pick a fight with me. For two stinking cents, I'd jump over this big fat table and rip your stinking cowardly body apart limb from limb. Do it! Do it! cried Major Metcalf. Metcalf, you stinking son of a bitch. Didn't I tell you to keep your stinking cowardly stupid mouth shut? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Then suppose you do it. I was only trying to learn, sir. The only way a person can learn is by trying. Who says so? Everybody says so, sir. Even Lieutenant Shyskopf says so. Do you say so? Yes, sir, said Lieutenant Shyskopf. But everybody says so. Well, Metcalf, suppose you try keeping that stupid mouth of yours shut. And maybe that's the way you'll learn how. Now, where were we? Read me back that last line. Read me back the last line. <laughs> oh, boy. That, that one hit me. Uh, read me back the last line, read back the corporal who could take shorthead. Not my last line, stupid, the colonel shouted. Somebody else's. Read me back the last line, read back the corporal. That's my last line again, shrieked the colonel, turning purple with anger. Oh, no, sir, corrected the corporal. That's my last line. I read it to you just a moment ago. Don't you remember, sir? It was only a moment ago. Oh, my God. Read me back his last line, stupid. Say, what the hell's your name anyway? Popinjay, sir. Well, you're next, Popinjay. As soon as his trial ends, your trial begins. Get it? Yes, sir. What will I be charged with? What the hell difference does that make? Did you hear what he asked me? You're going to learn, Popinjay. The minute we finish with Clevenger, you're going to learn. Cadet Clevenger. What did... You are Cadet Clevenger, aren't you? And not Popinjay. Yes, sir. <laughs> Good. What did... I'm Popinjay, sir. Popinjay, is your father a millionaire or a member of the Senate? No, sir. Then you're up shit creek, Popinjay, without a paddle. He's not a general or a high-ranking member of the administration, is he? No, sir. That's good. What does your father do? He's dead, sir. That's very good. You really are up the creek, Popinjay. Is Popinjay really your name? Just what the hell kind of name is Popinjay anyway? I don't like it. It's Popinjay's name, sir, Lieutenant Shyskopf explained. Well, I don't like it, Popinjay. I just can't wait to rip your stinking cowardly body apart limb from limb. Cadet Clevenger, will you please repeat what the hell it was you did or didn't whisper to Yesarian late last night in the latrine? Yes, sir. I said that you couldn't find me guilty. We'll take it from there. Precisely what did you mean, Cadet Clevenger, when you said we couldn't find you guilty? I didn't say you couldn't find me guilty, sir. When? When what, sir? God damn it. Are you going to start pumping me again? No, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Then answer the question. When didn't you say we couldn't find you guilty? Late last night in the latrine, sir. Is that the only time you didn't say it? No, sir. I always didn't say you couldn't find me guilty, sir. What I did say to Yesarian was... Nobody asked you what you did say to Yesarian. We asked you what you didn't say to him. We're not at all interested in what you did say to Yesarian. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Then we'll go on. What did you say to Yesarian? <laughs> I said to him, sir, that you couldn't find me guilty of the offense with which I am charged and still be faithful to the cause of... Of what? You're mumbling. Stop mumbling. Yes, sir. 
and mumble, sir, when you do. Metcalf, you bastard. Yes, sir, mumbled Clevenger. Of justice, sir. That you couldn't find justice? The colonel was astounded. What is justice? Justice, sir. That's not what justice is, the colonel jeered, and began pounding the table again with his big fat hand. That's what Karl Marx is. I'll tell you what justice is. Justice is a knee in the gut from the floor on the chin at night, sneaky with a knife, brought up down on the magazine of a battleship, sandbagged underhanded in the dark without a word of warning. Garroting. That's what justice is, when we've all got to be tough enough and rough enough to fight Billy Patrol from the hip. Get it? No, sir. Don't sir me. Yes, sir. And say sir when you don't, ordered oh, Major Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> how, how about I just get through this and then we'll discuss it afterwards? No. Clevenger was guilty, of course, or he would not have been accused, and since the only way to prove it was to find him guilty, it was their patriotic duty to do so. He was sentenced to walk 57 punishment tours, Popinjay was locked up to be taught a lesson, and Major Metcalf was shipped to the Solomon Islands to bury bodies. Hmm. A punishment tour for Clevenger was 50 minutes of a weekend hour spent pacing back and forth before the provost marshal's building with a ton of an unloaded rifle on his shoulder. It was all very confusing to Clevenger. There were many strange things taking place, but the strangest of all to Clevenger was the hatred, the brutal, uncloaked, inexorable hatred of the members of the action board, glazing their unforgiving expressions with a hard, vindictive surface, glowing in their narrowed eyes malignantly like inextinguishable coals. Clevenger was stunned to discover it. They would have lynched him if they could. They were three grown men, and he was a boy, and they hated him and wished him dead. They had hated him before he came, hated him while he was there, hated him after he left, carried their hatred for him away malignantly like some pampered treasure after they separated from each other and went to their solitude. Yossarian had done his best to warn him the night before. You haven't got a chance, kid, he told him glumly. They hate Jews. But I'm not Jewish, answered Clevenger. It will make no difference, Yossarian promised, and Yossarian was right. They're after everybody. Clevenger recoiled from their hatred as though from a blinding light. These three men who hated him spoke his language and wore his uniform, but he saw their loveless faces set immutably into cramped, mean lines of hostility and understood instantly that nowhere in the world, not in all the fascist tanks or planes or submarines, not in the bunkers behind the machine guns or mortars or behind the blowing flamethrowers, not even among all the expert gunners of the crack Herming Gehring Anti-Aircraft Division or among the grisly connivers in all the beer halls in Munich and everywhere else were there men who hated him more. Yeah, yeah the way they treat their own people, like, wow. And, and that's kind of it. They, it, it. It was truly a kangaroo court. They... He was guilty before he entered. They had made up their minds that they hated him before he entered. And the whole thing was so farcical. Yeah, the, I think the idea that he was... Uh, so Scheisskopf is, is... The fact that there's no more parades after Scheisskopf does the whole look, <laughs> look ma, no hands. Sorry, no hands. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. There's something about it. It's, whether, it's because they're probably being sent off to fight, but also... It's confusing as to what happened. So Clevenger gave feedback and then... Got well, we, we never actually got confirmation. We just assumed that the reason Shizkop was out to get Clevenger was because he actually gave him feedback. Also because yeah. once they made the change, they started winning pennants. 
Yes, he's pissed off that that was the case. Oh, what a pain. What a pain. And was the, the fap-loaded colonel who judged the parades, he was the same one who was the leader in the trial, wasn't he? I think so, yes. Man, that that was, um, you know, just as an aside, I think that's why I had trouble as I was going through it, which I, there was just such anger in the emotion as I was yeah, reading. Yeah, it's just that nasty. I, it's just, they're nasty and they're just, they don't care. So I think it's funny that Clevenger doesn't understand what Yossarian is saying. Yeah. They just want us dead. So he understands, but then he doesn't understand. Well, and, and just that line, like, he, he realizes, like, even... Over in fascist Germany, there are not people that hate me as much as those three men. Yeah, and there's no reason. And he's confused because he's like, but I'm not, like, I'm not the thing. Like, why are you hating me or or attacking me for being something that I'm not? Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's it's an odd little, well, not that you should attack someone for either way, that who they are either, but it was it's just an extra level of why, what is going on? Like, it's absurd, absolutely Completely. absurd. Uh, like, like as I was reading that, folks, every now and then I would look up and see Rue with her hand, head in her hands, just going, "Ah." Well, actually, there was something that happened earlier. Well, let me just remember. There was that sentence about Dory. Uh, Dory does. Uh, Dory does. Dory does. Yes, yes. Desperate to win. Dory does. Dory does. Come on. Ways back. Yeah, Dory does. Okay, no, that was just that confusing. Yusarian love Dory does. He he would sleep with Lieutenant Shyskov's wife to get revenge upon Lieutenant Shyskov for the way Lieutenant Shyskov was revenging against Clevenger. It's all very confusing and just. Yeah, no, that 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 flashback was a little more loopy than usual. Yeah, but it was all very. It was all about nastiness and and being horrible and. Uh, the thing I find interesting about that is that the chapter starts off by kind of painting a, you know, almost more of a foolish picture of Clevenger. Like, he's this kind of fool. You know, Yossarian calls him a dope because of his background. Mm. And then we take a flashback to cadet school, which Yossarian was there in cadet school with Clevenger. So I guess it's the idea that more than anyone, Yossarian has um, knowledge enough to say that he's a dope. Yeah. But but then just the circumstance of what happened, like we, I already had a little bit of empathy for Clevenger because we did discuss that he he's grasping so tightly to the rules, but but after this it's like damn man you know even even before you got sent off to war you, you just went through hell it's yes. probably the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you throughout this whole book. Yeah, well, aside from being killed potentially, but it's like this desperation that that. That Clevenger has is like he's hoping that if he knows whether they'll they'll protect him. He tried to appeal to justice, and that made the 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 colonel even angrier. He, yeah. which he went off on this tirade that to me, while I was reading it, made no sense. Well, also though they know Clevenger's history, they know him as someone who's in a he, school who protests this, who da da da. So he's got a reputation as a what they would term or consider a shitster. Yeah, well, I believe the colonel makes a uh, allusion to Karl Marx, and Shyskov yeah. said he had a mind, therefore he's it's, dangerous. It's anti-intellectualism, and I think mm. that's what that this is in this thing. Whereas, I mean, Clevenger's not particularly like he's meant to be smart, book smart, but he's not actually. So he's an intellectual, but he's 
intellectual who has compromised understanding, as we said. So mm. for them, they immediately see intellectuals as so disconnected from society and all, only wanting things that aren't relevant to the real world and not real ideals. Like, you know, that kind and of un-American. Yeah, there's all that. And you're going, mm, you hurt my head. Yeah. Anti-intellectualism generally does because it's... It, yeah. Uh, excessive. And, and yeah, yeah. Even good. even as they, they turn their ire on Pop and... Well, he turned his ire on Pop and Jay. Um, yeah, who's just doing his job. Yep, and, and even Metcalf. Metcalf's an ass, but he got sent off to the Solomon Islands after that in exchange. Yeah, it's it's not... Not only is it not just, it's people's egos just being in charge, and it's frustrating because... <sighs> you know what it was? It, it was definitely... Because it was the same thing with Yossarian. He's like, what kind of name is that? I don't like that name. And Yossarian Popinjay, those don't sound like American names. Yeah, it does come across as it was a lot of that. I like Shaskov just kind of going, well, that's their name. So at least he's not... Like, he's, he's upset and, and, and manipulating the system for his own reasons. Because parades, 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 and that's all there is in life. But in terms of everything else... Like he, at least he's not. It, he's not targeting like their race. Then he's not targeting their ethnicity. The main thing is, I mean, he's terrible as well. But don't get me wrong, he is terrible. They are yeah. all terrible people. But the, the, like, there's <laughs> at least he's not that kind of terrible person. Sounds mm -hmm. weird, but yeah. So I, yeah, that was that was interesting. And and he won't even whip his wife. Yeah. Well, there's that too. But yes, yeah, so it's I, I'm interested in seeing what happens because I just saw that the next chapter is major, 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 <laughs> and I'm curious about what's going to happen. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> if 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 the minimum is that the fact that you have to say major four times in a row, major, 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 major. I'm going to see how many times you actually say it four times and how many times you accidentally say it a fifth time. It's going to be funny to I, me. I I'm kept. Sorry. I, my, my mouth kept tripping up on Lieutenant Shyskov. Something about the, those consonants in that order. It's hard. Like every, every, every time it came up in a sentence, and it came up all the time in that chapter. Yes. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to stumble. <laughs> well, you already have Clevenger, which is not the easiest name. And mm. then you've got Shyskov, which is also not the easiest name. But not just Shyskov, Lieutenant Shyskov. Yeah. There's, there's an L and T in there as well. Ugh, it's terrible. Terrible that it is. So yes, poor Clevenger. I actually feel sympathy towards him. That's sad. And and there was a brief aside about Yasserian being in love with not only uh, Shivekup's wife but Miss Does as well. Yes, yes. Yasserian is. It's interesting that <laughs> I'm curious to know what will happen in terms of uh, wh whether. Uh, Lieutenant Shaskov's wife ended up having a kid and whose it will be? We don't know. That'll be a whole other discussion. We'll but, find out more as we find out. My guess is she never will because well, Ysirin's now at war and uh, she can't count to 28 apparently. Apparently. The thing that's weird is the fact that I mean, we just had, we had assault in there of the wife. Yeah. Getting, getting cracked across the head with a pole. Yeah. Wow, and and she seemed to take that favorably, because I mean she she asked her husband why he won't whip her, so obviously she's into that kind of thing. But yeah, no, but that was just. And then he's like, he's like, why is everything about you sex? 
Why don't you 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 can't understand parades? <laughs> so weird. <laughs> this is the noble pursuit. The noble pursuit of parades. And the weird thing With is with the fainting fainting uh, ceremony. <laughs> because they have the spotters and the ambulances. Wow. Because this is such a stupid uh, uh, exercise. I think I, I'm I'm. Laugh. I kind of. I'm wondering whether they cancelled it because it was just too costly. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. The, the there, whole thing. God, there's so much to unpack in that. Chapter. Oh, for sure, for sure. But I think, uh, I think it'll make more sense also as we go on, and will more well, will be understood. I think. Well, the thing that kind of is. Um, a little maddening about that is you know this whole thing's being told out of time out of sequence we're getting sh we're getting characters shaded in in certain uh instances here and there and until now it's all been at wherever they are in italy yes but now this chapter it pulled us back and goes actually let's go back to yesarian and cadet school in santa Ana, california yeah and there's a whole thing that happened there and now, now, yeah, it's opened the possibility where there might be a lot more story that happened at cadet school. Well, it's all about people and power. And the fact that it doesn't matter what the setting is, it's all the same story. It's just not, there's no point to it. There's no yeah. point to any of this. Nothing, nothing about this makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's rough. Oh. This, this is honestly a chapter that straight up, and very explicitly states that there is no point to war. Yeah, yeah. The, the the it was all the entire trial segment was completely nonsensical. Yeah, it so, was there for ego and power. Yep, nothing else. Like they made nothing else made sense. So yes, fascinating. Uh, anything else you want to bring up? I can't think of it. Like I'm just still reeling. Yeah, I'm like this is one of those ones where it's going to annoy me. Until probably next uh, chapter. Maybe maybe next episode before we start reading again, that the processing will happen. You're like, hey, I I want to bring up this because this has been this has this come has been to my sitting attention in my head and annoying me. You know <laughs> yes. that that comes up sometimes when I edit the episodes. Like a line will hit me differently and be like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that that's going to be an interesting one. There's just a lot going on. Oh, okay, well, folks, um, let's wrap up. The music at the top of the podcast was Soap Runs. It's composed by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams, and that's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. The music at the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo. That's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. And you can find our podcast on Twitter and Facebook at SMBSLT Podcast. If you add at gmail.com, you get our email address. And until next time. Well, you know, we, we'd appreciate any feedback. If you'd like to leave us a review on, um, I know Apple does that. Uh, if you're allowed to review it on Spotify, we'd appreciate that. Uh, please tell us what you're thinking of Catch-22 so far. Are you enjoying our journey through the book? Do you have any suggestions for books you would like us to read in the future? We will take them under advisement. But yes, uh, until next time, uh, please stay safe, uh, enjoy your reading, and we'll see you next week. Okay.